Like I said before, Carol and I last week were suffering for Jesus in California. <laughs> hey, it's part of the job, right? That's right. Uh, there's a few perks with this job, and that's one of them. Got to be out in California and to do Matt and Ann McNeese's wedding in uh, Palo Alto, California, which is right outside of San Francisco. And it's real interesting, actually, um, until this morning, I would have actually said I was colder in San Francisco. Seriously, it's, it's, it's known as the fog city. If you've ever been there, it's just foggy. It's real damp. And it's, it's probably mid-50s in this time of the year. And then until the sun goes down, then it's really cold. So if you're out in it, which you kind of are because you're deceived into thinking it's summer because there's no grass and you know, there's people out, and you're freezing, by the time it's nighttime, your nose is cold, your fingers are freezing. And I kept thinking, man, I was warmer in Minnesota until this morning. Until this morning, when I took that little walk from where I parked my truck on the drive over here, just over here, and that wind comes whipping down 10th Avenue, oh, San Francisco, let's go. I mean, it was whew, nasty. Uh, we did the wedding of Matt McNeese, Matt and Ann McNeese, and, and I had, I, I thought this would happen, and it did happen, and fortunately, I didn't lose it, but, but <clears throat> Matt was standing, uh, he was on the, uh, the floor here, and Ann was coming, and they came up the steps, and right when he got there, I was flashed back to four years ago. And I thought, don't lose it, don't lose it, don't lose it. Four years ago, it's uh, January 27, 2000, Matt McNeese was at a Campus Crusade for Christ meeting over at Mayo Auditorium at the University of Minnesota. He was leaning up against a, the banister and went backwards over a, into a spiral staircase and fell 40 feet onto his head. I still remember the phone call you made to me. It was like 12 o'clock at night. And for whatever reason, that particular night, I went to bed early Thursdays are kind of my Fridays because I take Friday off, and so I was, I was dead asleep. And Adam, you talk fast anyway. <laughs> but when he called me at midnight on uh, the 27th of, of January 2000, you were flying. And I had to get you to stop and say, wait, say that again. And he told me that Matt had fallen and that it, and it didn't look like he was going to make it through the night. And I remember uh, getting, getting out of bed and... and Getting, going over to the hospital right here and uh, standing there and in the midst of a whole group of people now, a bunch of people from Campus Crusade and friends and family were on their way and they hadn't met yet. He's from Worthington, Minnesota, and so they hadn't yet arrived. And that, that all rushed back to me when I, Matt is coming up and I'm thinking, I thought I was going to do a funeral. And here we're doing this guy's wedding. I remember that night uh, and just how intense it was. It's one of those days when, for me, the world just stopped. And I, I distinctly remember coming in and seeing this group of people who had just been told that he may not make it through the night. He landed square in his head. He had uh, a lot of hemorrhaging happening, and there was a lot of pressure on the brain. I remember being over here in the ER area of Hennepin County. And I distinctly remember when Ed and Carol McNeese, that's his parents, when they came to the hospital. And uh, <clears throat> I'm not at a wedding now. I can lose it now. Um, I remember uh, that their faces were just red because that's a two-hour drive. Can you imagine that drive? Two, two-and-a-half-hour drive from Worthington. And they drove here and... Uh, I remember reintroducing myself. We'd only met casually before. And just because I was the only pastor uh, that was there at that time, uh, I was able to talk to the doctors and, 
and I was able to do some things that other people weren't. They were giving me some information that they weren't giving other people, and I remember Ed and Carol talking to me, and we made this long walk down this, this, this hallway. I don't ever want to be there again. And I went down this hallway, and we went and talked to the surgeon. And the surgeon looked at Ed, Carol, and I and said, I don't want to lie to you. I don't think he's going to make it through the night. But if he does make it through the night, I want to also let you know we're going to do everything possible here, but um, I don't think he's going to have any meaningful recovery. <clears throat> said, we want to know what you want us to do. Um, we could do nothing if that would be, we could do nothing and that'd be an option. <clears throat> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, I remember Ed, Ed saying very clearly, looked at that surgeon and he just said, Do whatever it takes to save my son. And I lost it. <laughs> man, you can see why I didn't why I wanted to make it through the wedding, can't you? <clears throat> I just when this all flooded to me, I thought, oh man, I'm such a mess to begin with. Uh, and I have three boys, and I just thought that could be my boy sitting there. And it was amazing. We came back and we told the news to this group of people that were around there. By now there's probably quite a significant, 20, I don't know, a significant number of people that were there. And, uh, and we started praying. And people led us in worship songs. And it was amazing. God loves those kinds of odds. I, I, it blows me away. And yet your, your dependence on him just becomes great at that moment because you have nowhere else to go. This is not a wart that you can go and get a little liquid nitrogen on. This is something that isn't going to happen unless God moves. And God moved. And on January 10th, we did his wedding. And he's back to normal. I mean, he's back as normal as Matt ever was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's not here today, I can say that. Uh, up until that moment, that's the most intense I've ever been in my life about seeking God over a specific instance. Now, if you've been around Hope since then, you know that, uh, uh, that we've had more of those kind of things. As a matter of fact, uh, our, our Pat Conkey, who used to be our uh, worship pastor here at Hope and now is the pastor of St. Paul Fellowship, wanted to change the logo or the, the slogan from Hope Community Church, a place to begin, belong, and become, to Hope Community Church, a dangerous place to be. <laughs> because we had all these medical, incredible medical things that were happening and God was doing amazing healings. We saw a person get healed of cancer. Just it wasn't there anymore and all kinds of things. Anyway, that moment of being in that, in that emergency room that night and throughout the next coming weeks and even up to months later uh, really taught me something. Crisis has a way of focusing life down to that which is most important. When you're in a moment of crisis, all the unimportant stuff kind of floods kind of floods away. Petty differences that you and I might have. There are differences, but they're no longer a big deal. They're really a little deal. Because you know what? They always were a little deal. But we finally, crisis puts those things in focus. And you join together and you seek God. And no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, I don't care if you're an atheist. In a moment like that, like you're taking your next breath, you cry out to God for help. 
You can see that at 9-11. Everybody in the world was becoming uh, God-seekers because it was just a natural thing. God's created you to run on Him. And if you, if you don't believe that, just see someone in crisis and see where they run. They run to God. Think of the soldiers in Iraq. If you remember that, right before they crossed the border from Kuwait and other places to go into Iraq to start the battle. And they were freaking out. I mean, they thought this was it. A lot, for that, a lot of them, this was going to be their last days on the earth. And so they didn't sit around talking about, you know, how their stocks are doing. Of course, they're all young, probably not any stocks anyway, but they didn't talk about those kind of things. What did they do? A lot of them attended worship services. A lot of them gave their life to Christ, got baptized. You could see these, these huge tubs that they had made for these people to get baptized in full military gear and the whole thing, and not the guns and stuff, but, you know. <laughs> you saw a lot of them writing their wills. You saw a lot of them writing letters and handing it to Buddy, saying, if I don't make it, I want you to tell my loved ones this because I may never get a chance to say it to them again. Crisis has a way of focusing you, and especially if you're in a, a war, wow, now only the things that are most important become important. The sociologists have called this fox, foxhole living. A foxhole was something that was started in World War II, basically, where you dug a hole, and you and a two or three other guys were in that hole, and that way bullets and everything would go over your head. And when you were in that foxhole, you were not debating things about you know, what type of music was the best. Or you weren't debating things about, uh, you know, who was, uh, if you're a Republican or a Democrat. This was life or death in that foxhole. Let me give you a radical thought this morning. If you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that you've placed your trust in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. That you're banking, that your hope is in Christ's finished work on the cross, that you have any hope with God, the radical thought is, is that you and I live in a foxhole. You and I live in a war constantly. The, the problem is we forget about it. We forget that we're living in this war and we get caught up in little petty squabbles. I say this all right before our annual meeting. Maybe this is a precursor. Uh, but I have a buddy who started a church. I won't name the city. It's right here in the Twin Cities. He started a church. Him and a, uh, about 25 other people started this church. And the church just grew and grew and grew to about 500 people. And they wanted to build a, a building. There actually was one family that was raising big havoc in the church because the new building's architecture had square windows and not round windows. Now, I like round windows. Round windows, this is maybe the solution. Round on top and square on the bottom. I don't know. <laughs> I'm all for round windows. Round windows are great. Maybe they're more aesthetic. Um, but to cause trouble in the church, this guy was losing sleep over the fact that most people wanted square windows because they cost half as much and, you know, whatever. It, who cares? Don't have any windows. It doesn't matter. The point is, you don't live, if you don't live like you're in a foxhole, if you don't live your life, your Christian life, like people are shooting at you, you'll start getting caught up in a bunch of non-essentials. This morning, I want to invite you into the foxhole of the early church. We're continuing on in our series called Church on Fire. It's a look at the book of Acts. In the pre this is our eighth message in this series. We've only made it through 11 verses. Today, huh? Today, we're going to make it through 13 in one day. Huh? You are getting your money's worth. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take that. 
<clears throat> you are going to get your money's worth in this thing. So if you want to open your Bible, you can grab that insert, you can follow along on the screen. We're going to look at Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Let me give you, while you turn in there, I'll give you the kind of catch up to speed what's happened. Jesus had died on the cross, and he was uh, buried, and he was raised on the third day. After his resurrection on that first Easter morning, he appeared to the disciples and to a grand total, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, a grand total of about 500 people saw Christ for a period of 40 days. Okay, so he's with them, he's encouraging them, he's teaching them, he's telling them all kinds of things. If you remember from our study of, of Acts so far, he's been teaching about the kingdom and what's going to come in the future but not going to happen yet. He tells them right before he ascends into heaven, right before their eyes, he ascends into heaven, he tells them right before that, here's your job, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from the Holy Spirit. And then you know what's going to happen? Then you guys are going to be my witnesses. You guys are going to be the ones who's going to transform the world by sending this message of Christianity throughout it. The, the 11 of you, plus the other ones who are followers of Christ, the apostles and the other ones, they're going to be the ones that are going to change the world. Okay, that's what's happened so far. Pick it up in, in verse 12. All we're basically going to do is walk through the passage and just kind of make some observations along the way, and I have a few things I want to talk a little more in depth about. But that's what we're going to do this morning. Kind of follow what happens. Verse 12. Jesus just ascended and went up into heaven. They've been given this command. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. Now stop there just for a second. You've got to understand what's going on here. When, when it says that they're going back to Jerusalem, that was a scary place to be, right? Jerusalem, they knew when Jesus told them, let's go to Jerusalem. Do you remember from when we looked at this before that Thomas, Thomas actually said, let us go with him so that we may die. Because they knew that Jerusalem was a scary place for anyone who was a follower of Christ to be. So Jesus says, one of his last words that he says to his disciples is, guess what? You're going back downtown Baghdad. Because that's where they're going. So they walk back to Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day's walk. Now, you've got to understand, that's not very far. Uh, it, it, at first I read it, oh, a Sabbath, that's interesting. It must have been on the Sabbath one. But that phrase, a Sabbath day's walk, is what we would say if you're going to say something like a country mile. Country mile is usually a little bit longer than a mile, you know, but a Sabbath day's walk was just a phrase that meant three quarters of a mile is about it. It meant the rules were on a Sabbath, the day of rest, you weren't supposed to walk any more than three quarters of a mile. Okay, so they walk about three quarters of a mile. It's not that far, but it's far enough so every step they know they're going right back downtown, right back to the place where Jesus himself was killed. Verse 13, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Now, just, 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 that is not Judas the betrayer, because he's dead. We'll see that in just a second. He, he's gone. Judas, son of James, was an, he, he had another name called Thaddeus, which the other Gospels kind of gracefully call him. <laughs> Because, you know, nobody names uh, anybody Judas anymore. It's like naming your friend Benedict Arnold or something. You just, we don't name people that anymore. But this guy, the unfortunate thing, it'd, it'd be like being named Adolf, you know, before Hitler was around. You can't, you're stuck with it, you know. You didn't, it's just what you were given. Nobody names anybody Adolf anymore. Maybe their dog, but. Um. 
So this is the other disciple. So there's the missing one is Judas because he's no longer with them. Verse 14, so then they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. That's Christ's uh, brothers. Now, how do they cope with the loss of Jesus? Jesus is gone. They hold a prayer vigil. Look at that passage of verse 14. They all join together constantly in prayer. This moment was similar to that moment at Hennepin County. Where every, there's, there's a few more in the room than 20, but however many are in this room. And they're joined together. It says that, that they're constantly in prayer. This meeting right here, and you might want to underline this in your Bible. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, is the birth of the church. That is the first church meeting ever, right there. And what do they do? They hold a prayer meeting. The first thing they do is they hold a prayer vigil. So maybe we should have it on Super Bowl Sunday. Huh? Maybe not. But the first thing they did is they joined together and prayed diligently, and they were unified Prayer is the fuel, and it's the fuel here, it's the fuel at every church, it should be in the fuel in your life. In 1857, a man by the name of Jeremiah Lampfear, he was described as a quiet and a zealous man. He took a commission to be a missionary in the city of New York with the Reformed Dutch Church. He decided to hold a, a noon prayer meeting, and the first First meeting, he was the only one who showed up. By the end of the meeting, there were six people. So kind of six people had gathered together in this noon prayer meeting in 1857. The second week, there was 30 and the 20, excuse me. In the third week, there were over 40 people. And so this thing started growing and they thought, well, let's do this every day. Over a period of six months passed, and there were other, other prayer meetings were opening in other churches. Pastors were opening their churches. There were 10,000 people praying daily in the city of New York. It's unbelievable what happened. This happened, and it spread from New York all over the country, the United States. And over the period of the next two years, from 1857 to 1859, two million people made professions of faith in Christ. That's when the population of the United States was only 30 million. One-fifteenth of the population was converted because this guy held a noon prayer meeting. Prayer changes things. The first meeting of the church was a prayer meeting. But you know why it was that they prayed? It's not because somebody said, you know, you really should pray. It's because they were in a foxhole. They were downtown Jerusalem. It was hazardous for their health. Christ had just left them. They didn't know what's going on. There was still 10 days in between when Christ left and when Pentecost will come and we'll see what's going to happen. There's 10 days where they were totally in the foxhole. They knew they were in a foxhole. What do you do when you're in a foxhole? Ask any soldier. You pray. What do you do when you're sitting in Hedman County with someone who's got a, 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 really a, a life-threatening, should-be-dead Injury, you pray. You pray. Verse 15. <clears throat> in those days, now that probably is another day in one of those 10 days, but in one of those 10 days, because we're going to see what happens in chapter 2 next week about when, what happens at Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover, 
That's where the word penta comes from. Uh, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group, a group now numbering about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled when the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, just stop a second. Uh, that little phrase right there, that's like one of the best phrases in the entire Bible of what the Bible is. It says, the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David. So as David's writing these psalms down, it says the Holy Spirit's working through him and inspiring him, and it's, it's his words, it's his tenses, it's his verbs, but it's the Holy Spirit's intentions and meanings. It's right there. It's awesome. It's concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With, and then there's a kind of a parenthesis here. It says, with the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out, or as the King James says, gushed out. I, I think the King James likes kind of the graphicness of it, just gushed out. Just think of somebody's guts gushing out. Everyone in Jerusalem, stop thinking about that now. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. Now, something I want you to see here, that if you just kind of skimmed over this, you wouldn't think about, but if, it's obviously there. There was some serious pain here. There was some serious feeling of betrayal and defection that the, that the apostles felt. Because you see it in the, right there where it says, Oops, last slide. Can you go one more back? Where it says, um, concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who reject, uh, arrested Jesus. Then he says, he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. This guy was one of us for three years. To make, make matters even worse, go to the next one, Rebecca. To make matters even worse, verse 19, everyone in Jerusalem hears about their defector. Everybody knows about it. There was some serious pain. There was some serious pain going on here. They felt the pain of the loss of this friend of theirs. He was a betrayer. The only way you can be a traitor or a betrayer is if you were trusted. If you weren't ever trusted or loved, no one ever trusted you or loved you. You're not a betrayer. Then you're only a betrayer if somebody trusted and loved you. And they did trust and love Judas. And he betrayed them. And there was some serious pain. How do they handle this pain? It's awesome. In verse 16, it says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. They trusted that God knows what he's doing. Even though this really, really hurts, God knows what he's doing. God's not wasting this pain. The scripture had to be fulfilled. As painful as it is. I'm, uh, if you ever take the Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP, which uh, means I'm very scattered and like to talk about a lot of, well, sometimes, well, anyway, uh, I, I'm just kind of everywhere. Some of those people that's reading about six books at once. One of the books I'm reading is a book by Larry Crabb called Shattered Dreams, God's Unexpected Pathway to Joy. And I've been reading this for a while, and I thought, oh, man, does this fit in with this? He has three premises in the book. I like that when they put it right in the beginning, because that's about usually as far as I make it in the book. Um, Three premises. One, God wants to bless you. Two, the deepest pleasure we're capable of experiencing is a direct encounter with God. That's the deepest pleasure you can have. And three, so the Holy Spirit awakens that appetite. He uses the pain of shattered dreams 
to help us discover our desire for God. If you're here this morning, you've got shattered dreams, you are a candidate. You are a candidate for knowing God deeper. I want to read, uh, it's a little, a little bit long, it's a few pages, but I want to read, he's got a parable in here that hit me right between the eyes when it talks about this whole issue of pain. And it deals exactly with how they dealt with it. I want to read it to you. This is Larry Crabb, and it's a parable that he's made up. The man's life was pleasant. So too was his worship. The two always go together. God was not pleased. So he allowed the man's life to become unpleasant. The man responded at once with shock. How can this be? How could this happen in my life? Beneath the shock, the man was smug, but he could not see it. He thought it was trust. This soon will pass. God is faithful. Life will again be pleasant. His worship remains shallow. God was not pleased. So he allowed more unpleasant things to happen in the man's life. The man tried hard to handle his frustrations well, like someone who trusted God. I will be patient, he resolved. But he didn't notice that his efforts to be patient grew out of the conviction that a pleasant life was his due. He did not hear his own heart saying, if I'm patient, God will make things pleasant again. That's his job. His worship became a way to convince God to restore his pleasant life. God was not pleased. So he pulled back his hedge of protection around the man a little further. The man's life became miserable. The man got angry. God seemed unmoved, indifferent, uncaring. Heaven's door slammed shut. The man knew he could not pry it open. He could think only of better days, not of better days coming, but of better days before, days that, were no, long, that no longer were and that showed no signs of returning. His highest dreams were a return to those days, to the pleasant life he once knew when he felt what he had called joy. He could not imagine a higher dream than going backward to what once was. But he knew life never moved backwards. Adults never became children again. Old people never recover the energy of their most productive years. So he lost hope. God had withdrawn his blessing and there was no indication he would change his mind. The man fell into depression. His worship stopped. God was not pleased. So he re released the forces of hell into the man's life. Temptations that formerly were manageable now became irresistible. The pain of living was so great that the pleasure, the temptations afforded relief really seemed reasonable and necessary. But after the pleasure came a new kind of pain, the kind of pain that covered his soul with a fog that not even the brightest sun could penetrate. That man could only see his pain. He could not see God. He thought he could, but the God, small g, he saw was one whose job it was to relieve pain. He could imagine this God, but he could not find him. He addressed only the God he knew. He begged for help. Beneath his words of pleading, he could almost hear what his heart was saying. You owe me. I will never believe I deserved all this happen. I never believe. I will never believe I deserved all this to happen. The pain is not my fault. It's yours. His worship had always taken the form of a demand, but now the demand was so obvious the man could almost recognize it. God was not pleased. So he let the struggles continue and God allowed new troubles to come into the man's life. In the part of the man's heart that dreamed his greatest dreams, he had been certain he would never have to face these new troubles that were now in his life. For years he had said in his heart without actually hearing it, that could never happen to me. 
If it did, my life would be over. And if that happened, I'd have no choice but to conclude that God isn't good. I would have to dismiss God and no one, not even God, could fault me. But still the man could not hear his heart speak. What he could hear was a seductive voice that made the worst temptation he had ever faced to lose hope in God seem noble, bravely defiant, the only way left for the man to find himself. The battle waxed hot, but a flicker of hope remained. The man held on to his faith. Even as he did, he could not hear his heart saying, I have every right to give up on my faith, but I'm choosing the truly noble way. I still believe in you. I still believe you're there and that my highest hopes for joy, whatever hopes are left, lie with you. Does that impress you? If not, my God, what does? His worship was more desperate than ever, but it was still proud. God was not pleased, so he allowed the man's trials to continue and his pain to remain unbated. God kept his distance from the man. He provided no comfort, no tangible reason to hope. It was difficult for God not to make everything better in the man's life. It was even more difficult for him not to appear directly to the man and assure him of his presence, but he didn't. God had a greater dream for the man than to return to a pleasant life. He wanted the man to find true joy. He longed to restore the man's hope for what mattered most, but still the man did not know what that was. The fog around the man's soul thickened until he could feel it like walls closing in. All that was left was mystery. There was fear, certainly even terror, but more acute was the sense of mystery, the mystery of a bad life and a good God. Where was he? When the man became most aware of his need for God, God disappeared. It made no sense. Was God there or not? If he was, didn't he care? Or or, or did he? The man could not give up on God. He remembered Jacob, so he began to fight. But he fought in the dark, a darkness so deep that he could no longer see his dreams of a pleasant life. In deep darkness you cannot see, but you can hear. He could hear for the first time what his heart was saying. Bless me, he cried. From his deepest soul he could hear words reflecting a resolve that would not let go of God. Bless me, not because I am good, but because you are good. Bless me, not because I deserve your blessing, but because it is your nature to bless. You really can't help yourself. I appeal not to who I am. You owe me nothing. I appeal only to who you are. He still saw his pain, but now he saw God. And the cry for blessing was no longer a demand for a pleasant life. It was a cry for whatever God wanted to do, for whoever he was. The man felt something different. It was the beginning of humility. But the very fact of what it was kept him from seeing what it was. The man had forgotten himself and discovered his desire for God. He did not find God right away, but he had hope. Hope that he might experience what his soul most deeply longed for. Then he saw it. Fresh water bubbled up from a spring in the desert of his soul, and he saw it. It was a new dream. He could see its contours take shape. It was a dream of actually knowing God and representing Him in an unpleasant world. The dream took on a specific focus. He saw how he could know God and represent God to others in a way that was His way and not someone else's. It felt like coming home. He realized immediately that his power to speak on behalf of God to others in the midst of their unpleasant lives depending, depended on his speaking from the midst of his own unpleasantness. 
He had never before felt grateful for his troubles. His suffering became to him a doorway into God's heart. He shared God's pain in his great project of redemption. Suffering together for a single cause made him feel closer to God. A new thought occurred to him. I will join with whatever forces are opposed to the root of this unpleasantness. I will ally with goodness against evil. I will not wait to see more clearly. What my hand finds to do, I will do. But I will stay close to the spring. My soul is thirsty. A pleasant life is not water for my soul. Whatever comes from God, whoever God is, this is the only true water and that is enough. The man worshipped God and God was pleased. So God kept the water bubbling out of the spring in the man's soul. When the man didn't drink every morning from that spring or return every evening to drink again, his thirst became intolerable. So things in his life got better. Some things in his life got better. Some things stayed the same. Some things got worse. But the man was dreaming new dreams, greater dreams than a pleasant life, and he found the courage to pursue them. He was now a man with hope, and his hope brought joy. God was very pleased. So was the man. I read that because I think oftentimes we're dealt the lie that if God blesses you, you're just living a pleasant life. You got to feel the pain of these 10 days that they were crying out in, in, in terror for their lives, for the future of their faith, for everything, for their families. If you don't live like that, if you don't live like you're in a foxhole, Christianity will be just a slice of the pie. If you live like you're in a foxhole, if you live like it is all, that you're being shot at all the time, then you will start to sense God and that part of you that's designed of God to be satisfied only by God will start to get quenched and you will say, I can't believe I was drinking this other stuff for so many years. Don't satisfy for counterfeits. Let pain, let pain be your guide. Let it drive you to God. Now in that context, they had their first ever church meeting. In the fo- what would a church business meeting look like in a foxhole? It'd be short, and it was short. Right? Pick up in verse 20. For said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may, he be, may his place be deserted, let, no one, let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who has been with us from the, with us, um, the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The whole thing was here, as they said, we have to replace Judas. And it's interesting, it's the only apostle they ever replaced. They didn't replace the other apostles when they started dying. You can see, we'll see that in a few chapters. When James is the first martyr, it doesn't get replaced. It's only Judas, because he betrayed Christ, that they set up this place that he needed to, uh, that he needed to be replaced. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. 
Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Now, when you first read that real quick, it just looks like, oh, they just roll dice, you win, next, next decision. But in context here, of all that's happening, realize they were constantly in prayer. And it even says there, Lord, you know everyone's heart. We have tested these men. They've been with us. We know the purposefulness. What we said, they have to have been someone who was with us all the way from the very beginning of Christ's ministry, the last three years, all the way to his resurrection. He had to have seen the resurrected Christ. These, both these guys seem to you, but Lord, you know which one. We don't, but you do. And then they do. They roll a lot, and it falls to Matthias. But don't just take that as, oh, no, no, you know. Don't, don't take it that's how you should make, like, Decisions on majors and, and, and if you pray about it and seek God in his word and all that and then two things come up and they seem equally good, I'll help you roll the dice. But don't take this as that's the way you should always make, you know, should I get married to this person in the phone book? Yes, good. <laughs> you know, no, there's a lot of other things that are happening here. Question for you, question for me, challenging question, radical question. Do you live a foxhole life? Are you living your Christian life in the emergency room at Hennepin County? Or are you caught up in the round windows or the square windows? If you find yourself getting caught up in the round windows or the square windows, man, that is a gift of God to tell you, you know what, I am not living in the foxhole right now. Now, it's okay to have opinions, and we're going to disagree about all kinds of things, and there's all kinds of nitty-gritty things you have to do in life. Absolutely true. But if those nitty-gritty things start to command your attention and your affection, meaning your emotions and your will and your heart and all that's a part of you, if they start to command it that you can't balance your checkbook, you know what? Yeah, a million years from now, no one's going to care that you can't balance your checkbook. Now, balance your checkbook. It's a good thing. But it's not a major thing. In light of that, in light of living in a foxhole, all of a sudden now you're able to forgive other people. All of a sudden now you're just, you can live with other people in a way that's right. And you can let some of the minors be minors. Let the majors be majors and the minors be minors. If you don't, you're going to flip them. You'll get caught on minutia. Are you living a foxhole life? Are you praying like you live in a foxhole? Am I praying like I live in a foxhole? Are you seeking God's word like they did? Seeking God's word like you live in a foxhole? Are you seeking to, to let the pain of the war that you live in, you're not going to dismiss that, but you're going to say, I live here and this is painful and I'm going to let it impact me deeply because God, I want to know you and I don't want to just worship a pleasant life. That is the American heresy right there. A pleasant life. Are you worshiping that or are you worshiping God? Lastly, are you doing like these people did in this business meeting, this first board meeting they had? Are you purposefully seeking after God like you lived in a foxhole? You know, I prepared this message two weeks ago, so I knew this was coming, and I'm still convicted by this. I'm convicted that I don't live enough like I'm in the foxhole, that every day matters, that every moment matters. Let's pray together as we close. God, I just uh, 
I just confess on behalf of myself, and I'm sure many others in this room, that, that we don't live this way. Uh, we don't live like we're in the foxhole. Uh, we just flitter around. So, Lord, I ask for forgiveness on my own life, and I pray, God, for direction. And, Lord, I know you're so merciful and graceful, and sometimes you allow hard things into our life to remind us of what we're really made for. And I praise you for those, God, and I, I don't ask those for anyone, including myself, but I praise you that in the life of this church, you've given them, and, and you'll continue to give them, and those things shake us up and focus us on you when we could be getting sidetracked. So I pray right now, God, if there are people in this room who need a wake-up call, starting with me, God, that you would just give it. And Lord, we pray that it would be as least painful as possible, but oh God, that we would not fall into the American heresy of wanting a, just a pleasant life. We want to chase after you and let you satisfy the deep recesses of our soul that are touched by nothing else. So God, I just ask that you'd come and do that in our lives. This morning, if there are some of us here, God, who need to be reminded of that, that we've been chasing after anything else that would satisfy. God, would you use unsatisfaction and pain even to drive us to yourself? We pray for that, God. Would you let the example of, of the first apostles here as they come together in, in a moment of crisis, and what do they do? They join together constantly in prayer. Oh, God, well, I don't know when we're going to replan this uh, night of prayer, but when we do, God, would we join together constantly in prayer so that we'd be people and a church who are actively seeking after you? God, make us people who want to do that. We ask in Christ's name.